I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening to the Frank Boomer Still at Large, the show that was designed to make us all think and a little inspiration along the way. Whatever the reason you may have listened to our show, I'd like to take a moment to thank you. And also, if each one of you would tell a million of your closest friends, well, we'd probably get this show off the ground. Thanks a lot for listening. Join me on WhatsApp. If you've got some feedback, you can tell me what you think. This is Frank Bomer, still at large. Today, we take a look at the upcoming water wars. And where will you get your water? Stay tuned. So the old adage of he who has the gold makes the rules. Well, maybe that's changed because it's more likely to be he who has the water makes the rules. Unless, of course, he who has the water wants some gold and is willing to part with water. Most likely, a politician probably would make the right decision and not take gold for himself to give your water away. Because we know our politicians can be trusted. Certainly, that would not happen. Thank you for joining us at Frank Boomer's Still at Large, a show about people, places, and love. If you enjoy it, tell a friend. Yes, the, uh, the devil refused to take the assignment of torturer and tempter of the earth without two important terms. First, he required the English language. Second, he required a capitalistic monetary system in which he could control. Otherwise, he would not be interested in the much too difficult to control these ninnies and tempt them in Hufshabala. But with those two, success would be assured. And so he took the assignment, and the Queen's English has lived to this day. The perfect language for the liar, for the demagogue, for the tempter, for anyone who wants to take the truth and twist it as a pretzel to his own ends. For the truth is a mangled example of what it formerly was, unrecognizable in the present moment, after language and one with money has had his hand at it. Yes, when you hand English and money to anyone, you've given them the two weapons they need for ultimate destruction. Fortunately, the real power in the world today speaks Mandarin, but of course you notice he hasn't abolished English. Finds it quite convenient to keep it around. Otherwise, you would have already uh, gotten rid of it. Yes, the Chinese, you see, aren't really despicable. They simply need stuff. Yes, they need stuff. What do the Chinese need? Well, they need water, most of all. 
You see, they haven't used their uh, resources well at all. They used it to attain capital at a very quick rate. Now they have money, but they do not have English. And the English are not giving them the language. However, they are making quite a mess of it. How else could you take over the thought processes of the Western world? You could not have done it in Mandarin. The woke movement would never have occurred in Mandarin. They would have sawed through a double speak in five seconds. But in English, you can do quite a lot. It's a double speak language, the twisted term, the perfect foil for the demagogue and the liar. And no wonder it is the world's leading language. Then someone's going to point out it's only the third most spoken. Uh, irrelevant. The ones that don't speak English, they have very little power. The English-speaking world will never do away with the language. It is far too convenient for the, for the liar and the thief and the scoundrel. And for those of you who honor the virtues and try to live a good life and happen to speak English, you must be very careful because your mind is put to the test. Because there are practically 30 words for every possible idea, if not hundreds. And then they start limiting certain words in favor of others. So now they're trying to take over the language and the speech. But it will never happen. For the English language, for all its vulnerabilities to demagoguery, can also be quite forthright and can quite slash as the sword when spoken alongside the truth. It becomes a dangerous weapon, a machete against the overgrowth of a dualism and anarchy and twisted malfeasance we see so rampant in the world today. But our, our focus tonight was on China. China needs water and China has money but they can't drink it. They need water. They can't grow rice patties in money. They need water. In the north, it's hard to get, but that's where they grow almost two-thirds of their food. Not sure why? It's a Chinese thing. In the south, below the Yangtze, that's where the rice patties are, and they waste the water. In the north, they spend enormous sums to build grandiose configurations to move the water north. But their task is as if they are tasked to load the Pacific from a thimble onto their rice paddies, their forlorn and dry rice paddies. And their agriculture is struggling. And they have... Ne uh, negotiated all sorts of ways to achieve the other people's water. In fact, much of America's water technically probably belongs to China. 
And that's why they made such a big grab for our government to control everything here because we, America, is the leader in the water wars. We're the best positioned. The only country that really can stay self-sustained with drinkable water for another hundred years, assuming it's not filed up or shipped to Shanghai. Tonight's episode, we will discuss the water wars and how that actually is the map for geopolitics. We'll be back in a moment. This is the Frank Boomer at Large. Thank you very much for joining us, and don't go away. Yeah, you see, I am not the sharpest tool in the shed, never claim to be. And so I realized that I could not fight the Chinese invasion alone. I tried for years to arouse my fellow Americans to the danger of China. People laughed, people ignored it. Yeah, China's there. But no one can beat the good old USA. And China nibbled and nibbled and still nibbled. And now they are golfing. And so I enlisted all the help I could find. One of my assistants, one of my tools in the shed, a lot sharper tool than Frank Boomer, I must admit, is Matt Chapel. And he came up with a show, Uncensored China, which I love, and I encourage you to watch every episode they make. It's on YouTube, other places. I strongly urge you to check it out. They have the resources to do a lot of research, and Frank is free to borrow. You're free to learn. And so I share with you a snippet of one of his episodes, and it is right in line with the battle that we're fighting here on Frank Boomer at large. And so, being at large, we take all the help we can find. Yes, the global water wars, water wars are almost upon us. At least that's how it seems to many. The signs are troubling. Egypt and Ethiopia have recently increased their aggressive posture and rhetoric over the construction of the great Ethiopian Renaissance Dam in the headwaters of the Blue Nile, Egypt's major artery since antiquity. India continues to build new dams that are seen by its rival Pakistan as a threat to its water interest, and thus its national security. Turkey, from its dominant position upstream, has been diverting the Tigris and Euphrates rivers and increasing water stress in the already volatile states of Iraq and Syria. 
It has been claimed for decades that a confluence of factors, including water scarcity, societal unrest, and strategic maneuvering, will inevitably push states and other actors to act aggressively, perhaps even violently, to secure precious water resources. So, are we finally witnessing the first flashes of the coming age of water wars? To put it simply, no. Hmm. These visions of water, uh, future water wars miss one very important point. States rarely, if ever, fight over water. Hmm. In fact, the opposite is true. Cooperation over transboundary water resources is much more common, even in the most sensitive geopolitical hotspots. In other words, the way many people understand water conflict is fundamentally misguided and risks being a large diversionary exercise that obscures other non-military types of water problems occurring every day around the world. Focusing on a war, a distraction. While traditional organized warfare over water is essentially non-existent in the historical record, <clears throat> water insecurity is pervasive. From time to time, this insecurity manifests itself in violent ways, but far more common is the day-to-day -day injustice endured by hundreds of millions from fundamentally inadequate water supplies and sanitation. <clears throat> a result of political, economic, and social failings. Water is the lifeblood of human societies. Hmm. It sustains and nurtures the ability to lead full lives. When water supplies are diverted, polluted, blocked, or overdrawn, it directly impacts the possibilities of human life. And that is the real story of water insecurity. This does not mean that military or strategically-minded interpretations of water insecurity are unimportant. It should make news when Egypt threatens escalatory steps. If Ethiopia continues to build the Renaissance Dam, but we should still question the fascination with so-called water wars. It may be a tempting story to tell because it plays upon our deepest, most human insecurities. And despite its tenuous links to reality, it feels all too real in the face of harrowing climate predictions we hear today. Maybe the alliteration just sounds good. The effects, though, can be dangerous. Our fear and obsession with water wars diverts our attention and increases our awareness of the very daunting and very immediate problems of freshwater resources. According to the latest measurements, 768 million people do not use an improved source of drinking water. 2.5 billion lack access to improved sanitation. 2.5 billion. It is safe to say that these problems will not be solved in the war rooms of generals or on the computers of security analysis. One telling example of the complexity of water problems comes from the theme of this year's World Water Day, celebrated on March 22nd, Water and Energy. Thousands of individuals, organizations, and governments use the opportunity to raise awareness and advocate for better policy that takes stock of the interconnections between water and energy consumption, 
according to the OECD's International Energy Association global energy needs are set to increase by 33%. That's one-third by 2035, 15 years from now. With China requiring 65% more water in order to meet the demands of its industrial and energy sectors. All told, 15% of the world's total freshwater withdrawal is used for energy production. Given the increasing energy needs of developing countries, this, the impact this growing demand will have on already strained water resources is likely to be significant. Rather than war, however, the main problems are much more likely to be significant ecological degradation and adverse impacts on human health and well-being. So rather than finding new hotspots where water wars will break out, sorry Bill and Melinda Gates, I know you spent a lot of trouble determining the hotspots. I just read with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation has taken a proactive stand in the water crisis. That's reassuring. According to the foundation, Iran, Mali, Nigeria, India, and Pakistan are likely to encounter violent water conflicts. And Bill and Melinda Gates are working on that. The water energy nexus is but one aspect of the multifaceted global challenges to securing sustainable water resources. Yet, it can tell us much about water security than the water world's water wars thesis ever could. One of the principal ways to build resilience and adaptation is to forge partnerships through various groups and interested actors. Not only does it promote responsible water management, it also leads to interactions that highlight the shared risk communities face from degraded water quality and diminishing water quantity. An innovative strategy being pursued in countries as diverse as Canada, India, and South Africa is to include ecological infrastructure and larger national investments in a country's built infrastructure. Now, America just is on the verge of approving a massive infrastructure package. You can bet that the water situation has a lot to do with that. And you can bet that most likely America has probably given away the rights to lots of water to other institutions. You can, you can almost check it out. It'll, it'll never come to light, but infrastructure can't be separated from water. Ecological infrastructure is a concept that views healthy ecosystems as drivers of economic and social well-being in ways no less important than roads, railways, and ports. Viable ecosystems provide crucial services like fresh water, soil formation, disaster risk reduction, climate regulation, as well as cultural and recreational outlets. When managed properly, they can provide high levels of economic and social development. When managed properly. Promoting ecological infrastructure would require collaborative effort from a variety of stakeholders, farmers, banks, municipalities, to promote the shared values of sustainable 
sustainably managing water resources and the shared risk of inaction. It is this type of thinking that is needed to build resilient societies that can promote human and environmental security, not the incessant doomsday prophesizing that is characteristic of so much of the water wars literature. But does that mean people won't fight over water? When they don't do these common sense things that take a little time and they find themselves really, they can count the days they will have water, you think they will not resort to violence? Uh, China? Of course they will. So all that was just uh, ideological rambling because we know what really happens. We know that America's infrastructure bill is not going to take great and grand designs to protect our water. Probably just the opposite. But somewhere, somebody sits in a room and they're looking at the water and that is the only thing that matters. That is the prize that will determine which society survives in the next 30 to 50 years. Because we do have an overall issue with clean water for most people. And so that is how it should be looked at. Not from the vantage point of China, America, Italy, Mali, is that will you have water to drink and for sanitation and for the life that you, you expect? And that's the real water war, is the one that you will face. And don't think that it's going to be automatic that you just turn the tap on and clean water will always be there. Americans have been the most fortunate. The Roman Empire was basically built and based on the availability of clean water. And I suspect that was the, uh, the reason it fell, was when that became endangered. So that is our topic tonight, is the geopolitical ramifications of the water crisis and how the global interest will try to tie in climate, <coughs> climate control along with the water and they'll probably hold it hostage because that's one bullet that will not fail, is the, is the one that holds the water truly truly runs the earth and just to recap that we we go by country and total renewable water resources by kilometers squared date of information was this all available of 2011 so this is 10 year old information i just gave you the top four guess who number five is china at 2840 Now, this only speaks of the, the amount of water for the country. This, this did not give me the per capita. And when we get that, we're going to see that it changes a simple question of time. The question is, will the thirsty dragon drink? And so, in conclusion, we don't have anything to worry about. People just want water. They're not after your gold, your money. They're not trying to make you think a certain way. 
They're not trying to change your politics. They just want your water. Is that it? Well, who would want people's water? We spoke earlier about renewable water resources per capita. And the most recent information was 2017. According to that that list, resources in 1,000 cubic meters per capita, Canada, is in the best situation for water per capita. It's 79.24 cubic thousand, a thousand cubic meters per capita. Brazil is at 41. Russia is at 31. These are all some decimals. We'll just give you the idea. Australia at 20.12. The United States at 9.46. One, two, three, four, fifth. Now that has nothing to do with the availability of water. This is per capita because this shows about you and your water, me and my water. And for us, as Americans, well, we're not as in good a shape as Canada by any stretch, or Brazil, or Russia, or Australia. But we're in pretty good shape. We're fifth. Way ahead of Mexico, who's only at 3.58. Nice to know your neighbors aren't thirsty. Well, maybe they are. Japan at 3.37. Uh, United Kingdom at 2.22. China at 1.97. Just ahead of Germany. And just barely ahead of Nigeria. You get the point. China. The big, powerful country of China has less water per capita than the United Kingdom. Just barely more than Germany. Just barely more than Nigeria. And all these countries ahead of them, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. China ranks out of the top ten in per capita water. And so our point is, That would tend to drive necessity. So as you watch all the politics and all the ramblings, understand there's a very thirsty dragon just to the east or just to the west, depending on how you look at it. It really wants everyone's water. And it looks like they're going to get it. You know, so a lot of people, when they said, you're going to do a podcast, You know, when I walked out of that nine to five the last time, walked out of the corporate halls, you know, you've done enough to to have some, you don't have to, to lie to them and churn out the stuff do the grind and you had a little peace but all it did was give me some time to see just how bad we've all been screwed even the ones that's done well are getting screwed and that's the whole point of the Frank Boomer show wasn't to bitch about being screwed 
to just try to let everybody know that it was happening. But see, the way it works, they got a very complicated algorithm that works because it works on the dynamic that everybody screws everybody or something to that extent. And so you're getting screwed, but if you're coming out ahead of the game or appear to be, you, you stay with the Ponzi scheme. You don't mess with it. And so the guys at the top is perfectly profitable because that's the way it's going to work. And they, they run their scheme and it is that way. So I said, why don't we personify the four main players? And to, we've always, the central bankers seem to be the key somewhere along the way. So that's the oligarchs, the Bolsheviks, whatever, whatever inspired that group is still alive. It was never killed. And so if you know their nature, you know they're still here. They never went away. And so the original battle that caused World War I and World War II and most of the Napoleonic Wars and most of the wars we can remember, it seems like these entities were forming. And one of them was the entities that we would simply know today as the oligarchs or the central bankers. And for, for shortness and conciseness, let's just call them that. The hoity-toity, the bankers. But there's also an aristocracy that seems to have moved over from monarchies into whatever power source remained. So it's basically a power game. And so I just wanted to personify the main players as oligarchs, Bolsheviks, and you got Red China, you got the Russians, and I, I guess that's pretty much it. And so a history buff as I am, I love the history. And it, it's refreshing, depressing to see that it is. Like the oligarch guy said, you got to know the dynamics. And if the dynamics haven't changed, the events are irrelevant. So what are the dynamics? A bold, bald-faced idea that if you control the money, you could control the world no matter what happened always come out on top and they've been masterful at it and so that's how it's that's the dynamic that the aristocracy is banking on working even though they have would seem to have no money they spent if you do the actual accounting there's no way they could have anything they've spent so much versus what is available and so they have to be cleverly disguise this fact. And they've done so with controlling world events, but they have the money to control people. And so they know they're going to win, or they feel they're going to win. Part of the game was to, I'm not, like I said, the dynamics are way beyond me. But it appears that the Red Chinese, the Chinese were instruments of these oligarchs in some way. And it seems like it hasn't gone as planned. So they're not as smart as they think. 
They think that money can buy anything. If you control the money, you control the world. And then they got so arrogant that they assumed they could do to the Chinese what they did to everybody else. And the Chinese are different. And so they're learning. And that's why the world's in turmoil now, because the transition, the, uh, the reset, keeps getting delayed. And everybody's on a very tight time schedule. China's running short of water. Running short of water means you'll be running out of food. They have manufacturing which consumes 65% of their water. They don't have water. They polluted much of their water. And they're trying to use their money to play God and rearrange the whole environment. And they are complete idiots and their country is almost unlivable. They're in desperate straits. And they're not concerned about the oligarch's money. They've got most of it. They're the one that received it. So they could keep the game going. And they're not playing along by throwing it back. And so that's where you have your little disturbances. And so that's how the Fuss with the Frank Boomer show is all about. Is to personify the forces of the world and have a little fun with it, but kind of also give you what I believe is the real picture. Now you think about it a minute. Just think about it in real terms. Think about it at any level that you can actually grasp the concept. Let's say a poker game. You at a poker game, you got eight guys at the table, and you're cheating, and suddenly they all know it. What's going to happen? The game is over, you got to run. So imagine a poker game, but instead of eight people, it's eight billion people who know you're cheating. There is no doubt of it. And you think you're just going to walk out with a, with, a, with a pot? They know that. And so that's the dynamic that's being played out as we speak, is that the poker game... The, they're in, they're, everybody playing is aware that they're being cheated. It's just a matter of who's going to actually, you know, sell the score right here and there. Because if you don't, they're going to walk away with the whole pot. But you know they're cheating. So it's, a, it's basically who's got the balls to say, hey, that's not right. Someone's got to, or they will walk away with the pot. And they're banking that no one, that's it. No balls, no glory. And now, from Frank Moomer Adlords, we present you the Round Table. The Round Table. The round table is the conclusion of the Frank Boomer Show. Its purpose is to offer a round table for all who have been injured by his comments to speak, or all who have objected to his comments or remarks, have their opportunity to sling forth their darts and arrows. No, we're not talking about the letter sections. Well, I guess we are. This is the part where we bring you letters to Frank. 
Yeah, you see, our adoring public writes us letters. Even the nice Bolshevik ladies who cook good apple tarts uh, sometimes write to Frank. Before we do the round table, let's get the letters out of the way because Frank hasn't finished the show yet. But to, to address the round table, we will be hearing from the four major components that Frank has been attacking. We have the English aristocracy. We'll have their chance to, uh, to go at it and defend themselves as they're always involved in things in, in the world. Uh, so they'll get their crack at it, and Frank has attacked the Chinese, and they'll get their crack at defending themselves. And, of course, Frank has attacked the Bolsheviks, as he always does, and has blamed them for infiltrating America, when, in fact, it appears it's the Chinese. <laughs> so you got it wrong, Frank, and that might not be good for the, uh, so the round table. There's the opportunity for us to settle the issues, and then Frank is even going to read... Letters to Frank before the round table begins, Frank. All right. Dear Frank, from Mark Selinger from Sandusky, Michigan, writes, Dear Frank, I listened to your podcast of High Maintenance Woes, the show where you didn't do a show, but just hung out with a cool musician. Okay, do more shows not like your show. Always a fan, Mark. Okay, so thank you, Mark. Uh, we'll try to do that. In fact, we did get on there and get some more music from my uh, neighbor up the hall there. So that's uh, coming very soon. Some more high-maintenance wolves from uh, Kip Jackson, who's the next-door uh, musician right up the hall. All right, dear Frank, from Denise Albany, of DeBerg, Kansas. Dear Frank, I really like the pictures on your podcast thumbnails. Now, just make a good show. Truly, Denise. Okay, well, thank you. Uh, a lot of people go to, to a lot of trouble to get those pictures as a process, and thank you. I'm glad you like them, because we try to make every episode, even though it's a podcast, there's a picture that we feel like depicts the tone of the show. Even though everybody said, don't do that, make a permanent uh, thumbnail. And Frank said no. And so that's why you see all the pretty pictures. You see, it's a podcast. You got to give them something for their eyes. All right. Dear Frank, from Martha Willingham of Roanoke, Virginia. Dear Frank, you should retire from retirement. It gives you too much time to make terrible podcasts. While you're at it, consider retiring from breathing. Always the best, Martha. Thank you, Martha. I'll at least retire from retirement like I have been. I, I think I'll keep breathing as long as they'll let me. Alright. Dave from Dearborn, Red Mule, uh, Montana writes, Dear Frank, I have to be stoned to tolerate your show. However, after a few bowls, you kind of make sense. Okay, Dave. Thank you, Dave. That's really good. So do what Dave does and make it make sense, folks. We all have to make sense of it. Okay, so now I concede my time to the round table, and we shall proceed. As we said, Frank, we're going to have the British aristocracy. You've got the uh, 
the Bolshevik contingent, and you've got the Chinese contingent, and you've got the Europeans who feel like they have a seat at the table. Is that it? Nobody from South America? Uh, well, Frank, uh, I think the Europeans will take care of that. They consider that still theirs. Okay. All right. And so, go at it. Well, as you know, Frank, as you know, just because history, events may have occurred, dynamics haven't necessarily changed. And that's where your show borders on uh, insanity to imply that the British, the British aristocracy has done nothing but good things for the world. I, I didn't even mention you. You didn't even show up. I haven't mentioned you. You're the oligarchs, and I haven't, heard, I haven't mentioned you in a while. The Rothschilds don't know what's going on with you. You seem kind of quiet. I haven't tried to offend you. I haven't heard from you. I thought you were dead. Everybody keeps dying in the dynasty every day. A new king. We don't know who the king is, but the aristocracy or whatever it is, the monarchy. I wasn't trying to offend it. I just don't know. I thought you were gone. Never mind, Frank. As I said, the dynamics sometimes go beyond your understanding. Well, well tell me about it. Well, there's no need to speak any more of it. Uh, you haven't incurred our wrath today, so it's a jolly ho, eh? All right, so the, uh, the oligarchs, are they're content, haven't the British aristocracy is fine. The Bolsheviks, you know, you're doing a good job of doing what Red China wants. I mean, they used you as the, the pit bull to go get the stuff, and you're doing a good job of hanging on. Those jaws are grabbing and not letting go. So you've done a good job of being a Bolshevik. doesn't mean to have to like what a Bolshevik is, if that's what you're expecting. You've got a long wait. I'm just amazed at the people you are persuasive to. I have to defer to your persuasiveness. You're very good at what you do. Absolutely. In the terms of demagoguery, the Bolshevik is ranked very high. And in terms of skill and avarice and technique, he has to get his merits. He's done a good job of being the biggest dick in the fucking world. But, hey, who else? The Europeans... They're, they're not here. They didn't show up. Okay, so the South Americans belong to the Europeans, so, so neither one have anything to say. I guess that wraps it up, Frank. Okay, you can speak freely. So, once again, Frank Boomer, still at large.
tell you, YouTube has been secretly unsubscribing people from the show. So make sure you're still subscribed. And check back every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday for new episodes. The Chinese Communist Party claims the entire South China Sea is Chinese territory. Over the past decade, China has built artificial islands here. And satellite photos reveal military facilities on some of these islands. But this is the most recent escalation. Back in March, hundreds of Chinese boats occupied territorial waters claimed by the Philippines and other countries near Whitson Reef. China says the Philippines shouldn't worry. They're just normal fishing boats sheltering from storms. Forgive me if I'm a bit skeptical. These boats are often huge by fishing boat standards, and they never seem to catch any fish. They have automatic weapons aboard and reinforced hulls, making them very dangerous at close range. With top speeds of around 18 to 22 knots, they are also faster than 90% of the world's fishing boats. So the Chinese Communist Party is sending giant, reinforced, heavily armed fishing boats that don't fish. They were sheltering near Whitson Reef, even though there were no storms. According to Carl Schuster, a former operations director at U.S. Pacific Command's Joint Intelligence Center, no one shelters their ships in a storm area weeks ahead of a storm. If they truly are commercial craft, it is costing hundreds if not thousands of dollars a day having them sit idly lashed together. The reality is these aren't fishing boats. They're warships camouflaged as fishing boats. And they're part of China's maritime militia. Their goal? Force the Philippines to surrender their territorial claims. We covered the surge of Chinese ships in a recent episode. China versus the Philippines, dangerous dispute in the South China Sea. And now, this week, Philippine President Duterte says a confrontation will be bloody. The South China Sea dispute is heading towards a crisis. The U.S. and China have both sent aircraft carriers through the waters. Even France sent a nuclear attack submarine. The Chinese spotted it immediately. And now, Philippine President Rodrigo Duterte is saying he will send ships to assert the Philippines' claims. But he warned in a televised briefing this week that if we go there to assert our jurisdiction, it will be bloody. However... That might not be as strong a statement as it seems. Duterte is saying he's already abandoned the region to China as far as fishing rights go. At the same televised briefing, he said, I'm not so much interested now in fishing. I don't think there's enough fish to quarrel about. You know, Filipino fishermen might disagree. Duterte downplayed a confrontation over fishing rights, saying in the future he would send five Coast Guard ships, and they can chase, they can play with each other, and see who's faster. Well, that's a pretty cavalier attitude. Kind of different from before he was elected, when he said he'd personally jet-ski to a disputed island to plant the Philippine flag. In fact, the Philippine defense chief had to contradict Duterte. Duterte had said nothing will happen if the Philippines sends its ships because we are not in the possession of the sea. The defense chief then said, no, we will send our naval ships to patrol the Philippines' exclusive economic zone. So what happened to Duterte's it will be bloody thing? Well, that won't happen unless China starts drilling for oil. That would be the only time he'd be willing to act. 
And don't worry, that's not going to happen anytime. Oh, shoot, they started drilling in disputed waters. But wait, it's for purely scientific reasons. It was to retrieve sediment core from the seabed. Duterte's stance on China has been disappointing to people who thought he'd stand up to China. According to Reuters, he has repeatedly said the Philippines was powerless to stop China and that challenging its activities could risk a war his country would lose. There were even rumors the Philippine defense sector was going to withdraw their support of Duterte, a claim they are now denying. The problem is, China plays a big role in the Philippines economy, and the coronavirus has given the Chinese regime more leverage over Duterte. Access to vaccines has become a key concern for Duterte. Metro Vanilla was locked down again last week amid the nation's worst coronavirus surge, and the Philippines currently sources most of its supply from China's Sinovac. But unless something is actually done to stop the Chinese Communist Party, they will keep steadily expanding their reach until they control everything. The good news is that all of the attention on the Chinese maritime militia ships off the coast of Whitsun Reef seems to have caught the Chinese regime by surprise, forcing the majority of the Chinese militia vessels to depart the reef. Last week, the Philippine Coast Guard released this video of Whitsun Reef, showing much fewer militia ships there than back in March. Of course, that doesn't mean the Chinese Communist Party has given up. After all, they built these militia ships specifically to patrol this disputed territory. They just don't like it when the rest of the world is actually paying attention. And now it's time for me to answer a question from a member of the China Censored 50 Cent Army. Fans who support us in our fight against the Chinese Communist Party on the crowdfunding website Patreon. Frankie asks, I have a question I hope you can answer in the next video. Why did you guys start China Uncensored? What's the story behind it and how did the team meet? Ah, great question, Frankie. Matt Shelley and I have all been involved in journalism well before China Uncensored. But around 2012, I felt like the threat from the Chinese Communist Party was growing rapidly, but it seemed like most people weren't aware. So I thought, taking a little inspiration from The Daily Show in its heyday, if I brought some humor and sarcasm to China news, it might get more people interested. Shelley joined me early on, and Matt joined when we all went to Hong Kong in 2014 for the Umbrella Movement. And the rest is history, as it were. Thanks for your question, Frankie. And a big thank you to everyone who supports China Uncensored on Patreon. We could not do this show without your support. So thank you for joining us in the fight to expose the Chinese Communist Party of the world. If you're interested in joining, head over to patreon.com slash China Uncensored. Once again, I'm Chris Chappell. See you next time. I'd like to thank each and every one of you for listening to the Frank Boomer Still at Large, the show that was designed to make us all think and a little inspiration along the way. Whatever the reason you may have listened to our show, I'd like to take a moment to thank you. And also, if each one of you would tell a million of your closest friends, well, we'd probably get this show off the ground. 
Thanks a lot for listening. Join me on WhatsApp. If you've got some feedback, you can tell me what you think. This is Frank Boomer, Stuart Large.